Um, open your Bibles to Second Samuel 9. Uh, Pastor Jim started a series last week on experiencing God, taken from the book by Henry Blackaby, who it came out probably 100 years ago. Uh, I don't remember when. We read it many years ago. And the, and the simple thesis of it is this. Instead of asking God to bless what you're doing, find out what he's doing and ask if you can join him. And his answer is always yes, because he's looking for men and women, uh, dare I say boys and girls. Daniel says that the eyes of the Lord go through the earth, searching for people that he may show himself strong on behalf of. He's looking for people that are committed to him, um, not to themselves. And the hardest thing is our flesh gets in the way. And uh, we, we prayed before, in between the second and the first service, I'll put it that way. And I had a strong sense, um, for those who don't know this, this is the real spiritual thing I'm going to show you. No matter what church I preach in, they give you one of these things. And except in Minneapolis, I don't take them. They're the only ones that let me turn them down. And this tells exactly, and almost to the time that we're going to start and what we're going to do. And, and Paul says to do everything orderly and decently in Scripture. So I'm not criticizing that. And if you don't, then chaos breaks out. But I had a sense to, um, like I want to do something different. And that sounds good on paper. But there was a lot of stuff that wasn't in there. Either Liz did a really bad job typing it or God heard it. And I'm sitting there dying because we got to get over to Maddie's house to eat food. And then we've got some other open houses to get to. And then I've got to rush into that and I've got to meet with this uh, young pastor tonight. And then I get ushered off for the next week into this pastor's conference. And I think Thursday night I'm planning on catching my breath and... And so, Lord, I get it all figured out, and yet we say, we want you to have freedom in the house, and when he does, we all go and say, um, but what about? And so I appreciate that God is still instructing and teaching, and it's our heart and our flesh he's trying to get rid of. Because I've gotten phone calls at 3 in the morning. It's the old joke about what would Obama or Hillary do at 3 in the morning. I've gotten those phone calls, and we get them when God says, okay, I want to use you now when we least expect it. Naomi, last week or two weeks ago, shared about being at a bus stop and the Lord prompted her to reach out to a person of another nation. Don't limit God. Look for God. Pastor Jim exhorted us to start saying to ourselves, where are you working, God? And start looking. Are you been looking for them? Have you been searching for that? When you do that, it'll change your good days into better days and your bad days into good days. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes we can be so consumed with our junk, our stuff. How many know that God really does hear your cry that you are Lord and you can do whatever you want in my life and I'll follow you unconditionally? I surrender all. Not one tenth. I surrender all to Jesus, I said when I was ordained back in the mid-90s. And he took me serious at that. So have you been looking for him? Have you, or are you so consumed with your stuff you miss it? This week, we're going to look at God pursuing us. The initiator of the relationship is him. The hope of it is you don't have, you can never pray hard enough, intercede enough, witness enough for the lost in your family. Never. More than the, than the love and the intercession and the pursuit that God has for that same individual. Did you catch that? You will never work up enough love for them. Not like God has. You can't. He's the initiator of the relationship. He's the pursuer of the relationship. And the hope is he's already doing it. 
So when you intercede for someone, he's already doing it. So what we're doing, in essence, is coming alongside and saying, Lord, give me your heart for that person. Give me your heart to reach into that life. Give me your heart, your passion, your consuming power. And the only way I know you get that is you get in worship. So somewhat's going to happen if we're going to allow his pursuit of us. We're going to have to get more into worship. I love KTIS. I think it's a great station. I have it on a radio in my office, and it just kind of in the background, just kind of keeps it. And I go into the general manager's office, and I can finish the same song I was listening to in my office, and just kind of keep it going. It's just kind of in the background. It's a little, and I notice it's a subtle difference, but I notice it. But I'm talking about worship tapes, not praise tapes. Praise is kind of thanking him, and we're going to do this, and we can tear down the enemy's camp, and it's all good stuff. I'm talking about worship tapes. Worshiping in the beauty of his holiness. Lord, you're good. You're to be magnified. Lifting him up. Not just who we are in Christ, but who he is. And being in that presence, you want to experience God. Some of you, it's going to take some practical changes. You're going to have to adjust what you're watching, what you're listening. Oh, it's legalism, Tom. It's not legalism. When you're dating someone, you will stay up all night to pursue that relationship. You will be passionately in love with that person. God is standing at the door knocking. And if anyone hears his voice, he'll come in and have supper with them. He wants to be with us today. So, Lord, as we spend time in this word, I am asking for you to continue to do the surgery you're doing in our hearts. That you'd put inside of us a passion for you beyond anything we've ever experienced. Lord, forgive us that we've pushed you away at times and we've been so preoccupied with doing the stuff instead of you. Lord, your scripture is so strong. That says in the last day, you will judge us not by what we did, not whether we cast out demons or built buildings or healed the sick or raised the dead, but whether or not we knew you. Lord, we want to experience you. We want to experience the Father's love. We want to experience it passionately. But Lord, there's so much other stuff at our doors. So Father, as we open up this word, I ask that you would relentlessly, radically change our hearts, O oh God. For only you can do it, and it's in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Did you find 2 Samuel 9 yet? The whole idea of God pursuing us for men is a little weird. Women, you can relate with the bride of Christ. Men, it's a little weird, especially men who have gotten in trouble. God wants to talk with you. Why? What did I do? The Father wants to spend time. Why? It's, it's never this inviting, great thing. Hi, I get tickets to the wild game. Who wants to go? That's an exciting thing. The God of the universe, the one that created everything, wants to intimately sit with you and fellowship with you. And yet, for some reason, we as men kind of push that away. He's the pursuer. He's the author of the relationship. And I'm telling you this. Unless you totally reject him and push him away, he's going to keep pressing through. Nothing in this world will ever satisfy you you and your life apart from him and him alone and he's jealous and that's why some of the stuff you've been throwing yourself into even good stuff doesn't bring you satisfaction anymore it's never going to apart from him and him alone solomon figured it out it's vanity of vanity he says there's nothing new under the sun and for all of solomon's great wealth he says this is really what it boils down to and this story here is kind of an Old Testament version of the prodigal son, which is really more about the lavish father than the prodigal son. But this is it. In this story, David, King David, symbolically, for most of the story, well, there's one part where it's sort of a little bit more 
uh, like David than it is the father. But he symbolically represents the father. Isaiah 55 says that he shows his mercies through David, his servant. This was symbolic, the story of the father's relentless pursuit of us. Those who know him and those who don't. Just, well, I, I committed my life to Jesus when I was four years old. Why would he pursue us? He, he never said no to you. He's going to keep chasing you down. He's going to keep pursuing the relationship. Eyes not seen, ears not heard, nor is it entered the hearts of things God prepared. That's not just for us casting out devils and healing the sick and raising the dead. The relationship with the Father is more important than anything else. Nothing is more important. Contradicted with Scripture. He says, but you did not know me. He didn't say, but you didn't cast out a devil, but you didn't heal the sick, but you didn't raise the dead, but you didn't knock on doors evangelizing, but you didn't baptize people. You didn't know me. You didn't intimately have spiritual intimacy with me. Now, here's the good news. I'm glad we're not dead. We're dead in Christ, but we're still on the earth, which means that the, the author and the pursuer of that relationship today says, I want to go deeper with you. We're not dead. We don't have to stand there unless someone dies during the service and then we really got problems because that's not on the schedule. (laughs) Still has time to work in our lives and we can say, Lord, I'm glad at least I had five years with you. I wish I had had the whole 20 years with you, but at least I had five. Thank you, Lord. 2 Samuel 9. All right. If If you can't take notes fast enough, I don't have PowerPoint and I have a good reason. I'll tell you why later. I like PowerPoint. I'm just not using it. I will post the sermon notes, I promise you. Verse 1. Now David said, Is there someone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness or mercy for Jonathan's sake? Verse 1. And David said, Where was David? Was he at a breakfast meeting? Golf outing? This is the most powerful leader in that area. And David said, When President Bush speaks... It seems like every source of media covers it. It used to be Channel 2 and 17 were the only stations you could watch if you didn't watch it, watch the presidential address. Now, even they cover it. And David said, every word that the President of the United States says is documented by one of those stations, and whatever is left over, all the mistakes, Jay Leno and, and David Letterman picks up and continues to loop all their mistakes. And David said... The most powerful man in the universe at that time, in that nation. He was the feared leader. He was the one who had annihilated people. He had gotten the ark back from the Philistines. He is the one that was known for killing Goliath. Made a statement. And somebody sat up and wrote it down. And David said, again, he's representing of the father in the story. Let me give you a couple of definitions real quick. Mercy is the deepest possible desire to give. Compassion is this drive that's brought about by mercy. The King James Bible renders it bowels. Compassion was a vulgar term. It's the I gotta give. That's why they use the word bowels. Mercy is the deepest desire to give and compassion is the drive brought about by the mercy. That's what's going through David's heart now. That's what's motivating him. That's what's running through his veins. God's love in the Greek is agape. In the Hebrew, it's hesed or hesed. H-E-S-E-D. Let me give you my definition of God's love. It's the promise to give, to help, to restore until it's too good to be true. 
And then you swear to covenant in your own blood to prove that you're not lying. John 14, Jesus makes this weird statement. If it wasn't true, I wouldn't have told you. God's love is so strong that we can't receive it. So to prove he's not lying, he swears covenant in his own blood to say, I'm backing it up. I'm not going to let it down. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you something that's not true. See, Jonathan and David had made a covenant. Jonathan was Saul, King Saul, the wicked king, his son. God said to Saul, I've had enough of you because Saul rejected God in a sense. So, so the anointing as king of Israel was taken off him. And the prophet Samuel went to Jesse's son and says, God told me that one of your kids is going to become the new king. So he went through all the kids and eventually anointed David with oil. Jonathan got word of this. Now, Jonathan should have been the next king by virtue of the fact that he was in the lineage. He goes to David. He said, David, here's the thing. I've watched the way he responded. I fear God and I know that you are the next king. But I need you to cover my backside. So I want to make a covenant with you. And he swears the covenant to Jonathan. And he said, but here's the deal. I don't want it for just me. I want it for my whole household. I want you to covenant your life with me and with my household. That's You can find it in 1 Samuel 20, verse 14 to 16. It says this. I ask that you show, show me kindness of the Lord while I live, that I may not die, but also that you may not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemy. See, this promise that he made to this man, Jonathan, the one who he loved as his own, was burning inside of him. Jonathan is now dead. Saul and Jonathan lost the battle and they're dead. Time has gone on. David has been the king. Life has been good for him as king. He gets everything he wants and stuff he doesn't need. The Ark of the Covenant has been captured once again from the Philistines and brought back in. They have been rejoicing. They have been celebrating life. All this stuff is going on, and he says, wait a minute. I don't know what caused them to say, wait a minute. I don't know what I'm caused to say. Is there somebody left of the house of David that I might show mercy? Maybe it was a scar on his wrist as they had mingled blood in covenant. I don't know what it was, but something went off inside of him and he said, I made a vow to take care of there, Is there nobody left to the house of Jonathan that I might show mercy to? Verse 2. And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And when they, called him to, when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there's a son of Jonathan who's lame in his feet. See, in 2 Samuel 4, 4 is a story that all of a sudden, when word reached the kingdom that Saul and Jonathan were dead, I don't know if you know this, in a lot of countries this takes place, and we used to have people here from Zambia and from Liberia where they told stories that, that they were actually royalty that were here. They were in a position that should have been in leadership in their countries as princes, as high-ranking officials came to the United States because when the new government came in, as he was talking about earlier, they annihilate everybody else. So all of a sudden, word reached the kingdom and there was this five-year-old kid and the nursemaid says, we got to get you out of here. we got to get you into exile. If you stay here, you're going to be in trouble. And in the midst of all this, she pulls him up 
and he ends up becoming lame and injured in the panic and the pandemonium of clearing out the house and getting out of the castle, getting out of the whole thing and getting everybody into another country. Panic has struck. This kid is lame in his feet, but he's not a kid anymore. He's a young adult. In fact, we'll find out he's got kids. So we could certainly say that maybe he's 25, 30 years old. Something has been stewing in this kid for maybe 25 years. Every time he's hobbled and limped his way through life, he's reminded of what King David did to him. Stole his, his dad's land, stole his grandfather's land, and stole the kingdom from him. And he's been hiding in a place, and all of a sudden, every day of his life, he's reminded of what King David did to him. There's a very good chance there's something brewing in this man's heart of anger and wanting vengeance. But more than that, he's afraid of him. And that's the scene for the story when David said something. Mephibosheth is a prince, but he can't walk and he can't work. In verse 4, So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he's at the house of Meher, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Lodabar is, by definition, means no pasture. Do you catch the irony of that? Here's David saying, is there anybody that I can show kindness to? And he says, yes, there's a son of Jonathan, which means a son of yours. Not an adopted son. Covenant wasn't, isn't viewed that way outside of these cultures of the United States of America. In those cultures, what's yours is mine, what's mine is yours. Do you know that when the whole wedding thing, you know what the uh, groomsmen and the bridesmaids were for in a covenantal culture like that? Here's the deal. They're saying this. We're witnessing this marriage. And if these two choose to break it, we will kill them to keep that covenant. It's a serious thing that takes place in there. So all of a sudden, Jonathan is dead. But David hears about his son living in a place of no pasture and as a shepherd. And one who knew the shepherd, as, as uh, Andrew read earlier. And Anne read earlier, the Lord is my shepherd. The same one that penned Psalm 23 hears that his son is in a place of no pasture, living in the house of Meher in Lodabar. Something gets ignited. He's already stirred up with compassion, or mercy, I should say. Compassion kicks in. Something is about to take place when he discovers his son, while everyone else is sitting at the royal banquet, his son is in a place of no pasture, and something goes off in him as a shepherd and as a father. And if you get this story, I'm going to tell you this, you're going to see a picture about his, of the relentless pursuit of God like you've never seen before. And he's chasing you, and he's pursuing you, and he's hunting you down, not as an enemy, but as a friend. Mephibosheth's been in a place of no pasture because he's had no shepherd. He's been living as a slave, even though he's a prince, because he doesn't know the king. Verse 5, Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Meher, the son of Amimel, from Lodabar. I want to understand something here. This is David, the most powerful man in the world. He could have put out a hit squad, get the guy and bring him back. David didn't pick up the phone and say, Hi, uh, um, Mephibosheth, hi, this is David. Want to have lunch with you? What are you doing? 10 o'clock on Tuesday, that work off your schedule. He doesn't do that. 
This is David. This is the warrior David. This is the king David. This is the one with all the regalia. He's been storing up gold and silver to build this temple that he never is allowed to build. This is the guy that's got the wealth of the world in his hands. He's not going to go when he finds out his son's in a foreign country living in a state of brokenness and lameness and no pasture. He's not going to just pick up the phone and do it. And he's not going to just send out a car. He's going to send the 4th Infantry there. He's going to send in the Tomahawk helicopters. He's going to send in the Patriots missiles. He's going to send in 10,000 troops because his kid's in a place of brokenness and lameness, in a place of no feeding and no shepherding. He's not going to sit there and just send one person. He wants to make sure if the enemy stops, he's going to continue to pursue the relentless pursuit of this kid. My guess is that Mephibosheth, when he looked outside the window, saw the cloud coming up and the banner of David coming. This man had found his son. And you read the story of the prodigal son. The father doesn't wait for the son to come home. He's looking at the corner. He's waiting for that son to be there. David sends out the fourth infantry to get his son, who is broken and lost and wounded and fractured. Mephibosheth hears this, and my guess, he's filled with terror as he thinks about the fact that David has finally found him. All these years he's been hiding. All these years he had heard the stories from Grandpa Saul. All these years he had been living in fear, wondering when would they find him out. I remember Albert's fear of going back to Zambia as they may capture him and put him in prison because he was here in exile. Suddenly, your greatest fear is coming after you. The God of the universe wants to spend some time and talk with you. It's a time for the tallies to be settled and you're afraid. That's why people don't come to Jesus often. They've been lied to, ripped off. God has taken the blame for your brokenness, your fracturedness. Scripture says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he reap. This world is reaped in brokenness and confusion and murder and all the other atrocities in this world because we've sown to unrighteousness, not God. God didn't fracture the Meshavishef's legs. David didn't do it. But for 25 years, we can use that illustration of his age because I don't know how old he really was. He's been living in this fear and he sees this king finding him out, and so Mephibosheth's in a position of saying, I'm in trouble now. I'm about to die. It's all over. All the stories I heard, they're coming true. He had been lied to. He had been crippled. And suddenly this guy, David was the one that stole the land. David was the one that probably got his dad killed and his grandfather killed. This guy stole my throne, and he's sitting on it, and now he has the audacity to send the troops in to get me. How far away from the picture that was, though, that really... Because Mephibosheth didn't know that David was actually coming to rescue him. David was coming to take him out of his place of brokenness and in poverty and a place of no shepherding and no pasturing and take him into the one of the most prosperous things. Get a picture of this thing. Overnight, this kid is going to go from a place of no shepherd into one of the wealthiest kingdoms that existed on the face of the earth at that time. Overnight. But David is so set in his heart that God can't be good and God can't want to get into my life. That's what I like about the experiencing God understanding. Instead of trying to get God into your world, find out where he's working and join him. I'd never go where you went, Katie. But every time you start talking about what God's doing with those women, my heart was broken. And I thought, God, can I go over there? That's where you're working. That's on your heart, the brokenness of the women that Katie was reaching out to for what man and society has done to those people. 
So you go and you experience what it is. So that's what David is trying to do here. And Mephibosheth is in afraid. Why is he afraid? Because he never read the covenant. He didn't know he had a covenant with Jonathan. He had no idea. Wouldn't it have been great if Mephibosheth somehow would have had a copy of that covenant with him? And any day, he could open it up and say, looks like I'm about to inherit the kingdom. Looks like I'm about to be there. I'm the head, not the tail. I'm above, not beneath. I'm forgiven. I'm seated in righteousness. I'm seated in heavenly places. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Wouldn't that have been great if you would have had a copy of that? Then count yourself blessed. You got a copy in your hand. There's a copy in the pew. This is why I don't put it on the PowerPoint. I want you to get a love for his word. I want you to get so engrossed in this and be filled with the understanding. This is your covenant with God. He wrote these words down, not because he had nothing better to do, but so at any time you could pick it up and say, I suddenly know who my God is. You say, what about all those passages like in Jeremiah where God's pretty mad and talks about, Jeremiah, don't even waste time praying because I'm not going to hear When you read it through the eyes of the covenant, you see this God who is pouring out lavishly because of the brokenness of his people, who are digging holes in the grounds and and drawing life from something that will never draw life. You have great freedom and no excuse with the help of the Holy Spirit, no excuse not to know God's covenant. The great news is that he's not going to let you get away with it. He's pursuing you. He's chasing you. He's relentlessly coming after you because he wants you to get it. Because there's areas that have been broken and fractured in your life. And he's saying, that's not the way I intended you to live by any means. Verse 6. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, here's your servant. Mephibosheth is so afraid of David that he falls on the floor. This is not worship. This is fear. He's on the ground on his face because he's afraid of him. He's probably waiting for him to draw the sword and cut his head off. He heard what he did with Goliath. He not only knocked him down, he took Goliath's sword and cut his head off. He's waiting for it. He's thinking, this guy's finally got me. David responds. You notice he responds with a question. He's looking. Here he is, his son who is, the, is a prince, who is the potential king of Israel, apart from the calling of Solomon's life. And I don't even think Solomon's even around at this point. And he walks up to him and he says, uh, Mephibosheth, what are you doing on the ground? You're a king. You're my son. Why are you in that position? It doesn't make any sense. David saw him as a son. He's expecting his son to run in and greet him and for everybody else to bow down because this is the prince. This was the child of the king walking in the room. And he says, Mephibosheth, why, why are you lying on the floor? Why is my son, as I've called him into my presence, is he on the floor afraid of me? Just because someone lays down in worship doesn't mean they're actually worshiping. Sometimes we're so afraid. It's called religious bawling and squalling. And we think it appeases God and, it, and I hate it. I would hate if my kids walk into my house and fall down my face because they're afraid of me. It's one thing if they want to worship me and say, Dad, I really appreciate what you do and, and I want to honor you. That's different. But to be afraid of me and say, Dad wants to talk to you. Why? What did I do? Verse 7. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness for Jonathan your father's sake and restore to you all the land of Saul your grandfather and... And you shall eat at my table continually. He says, fear not. David hadn't stolen the land. 
He had got it by covenant. He hadn't tricked it. He wasn't like uh, any of the other people in the Old Testament. He had got it in a way where Jonathan came to him and said, let's make a covenant. That land was rightfully his. He wasn't coming to kill, steal, and destroy. He was coming that he might have life and life abundantly. That's why he was coming to Mephibosheth. Hasid is driving David. He represents God. God is throwing through David. He's saying through David, I'm not sending an army to destroy you. I'm sending an army to rescue you out of the place of no pasture and to bring you into a place of life. The Lord really convicted me about six months ago. He said, you know too much about the first half of John 10, that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. I want you to understand John 10, the second half. I have come that you might have life and life in abundance. Zoe life. Take us to a place deeper, Lord. A deeper place in you. Look at how Mephibosheth responds in verse 8. Then he bowed himself. He's already prostrate on the floor. How can you bow yourself lower when you're already on the ground? He does it. He said, what is your servant that you should look upon me as such a dead dog as I? Religious bawling, squalling. Lord, I'm so unworthy, so unworthy when you're unworthy. He said, if you confess your sins, I will be just and faithful to forgive your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Hebrew, he says, come into the throne room that you might find mercy in your hour of need. He says, come in without circumlocution, without all these fancy words. Here I am, Dad. But what if I leave mud on the floor? He hold us accountable. We pleaded, we confessed. He said, Lord, that's right, I did do that. And I plead the blood of Jesus Christ over that. He wants the sin out of our life for one reason. And that sin separates us from God. And if we can get that out of the equation, we have no reason not to have full access to him. That's why he pursues us. That's why he pursues us and says, I don't like the way you're living. Well, great, I, everyone else told me that too. No, 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 you don't get it. I want to remove that from your life so you have no reason not to hang with me. Oh, if God found out who I really am, he already knows. And he sent Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago to pay for that sin, that you have free access into the throne room. Mephibosheth already was in that position of royalty. David was trying to rescue him out of it to say, this is rightfully yours because of the covenant and the blood that was shed years ago with your father, Jonathan. Mephibosheth isn't a dog. He was a prince. He was a prince when he was five years old. He's a prince today. Again, Jonathan, when Jonathan had him, or his wife had him, not Jonathan, when he had him, he was born as a prince the day he was born. Because he was covenant to David, David would make sure that thing took place. Do you follow that? He's not changing something different. He had always been rich, but he believed lies. And because of that, because of the lies he believed, he never entered into the inheritance that was rightfully his. Verse 9. King David said to Ziba, Saul's servant, I have given your master's son all that belongs to Saul and all to his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him that you may bring in the harvest, that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. You notice that David didn't even pay attention to all those religious bawling and squalling? He instead turns to the servant. Same thing the father did in the prodigal son story. The son had a speech. Oh, Father, I'm just not worthy even to lick the stuff that the pigs are eating. The father stops talking to him and says, Son, would you work the land? 
David doesn't pay attention. He says, this kid is so broken, so fractured. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to talk to the servant. Would you do me a favor? Uh, he owns a lot of land. I want you to work it, bring the produce so he eats. But he, he needs to be freed up to be in my house. He needs to be in a place where he can hear my word. He needs to be in a place where I can tell him the covenant. He needs to be in a place that he can worship me freely for who I am. There's an exhortation to you who already know Jesus. God's calling some of you to be Zybas, to free up the lost. Quit making it hard for people to come into heaven. Two reasons why people don't come into heaven. One, they don't know any Christians, and the second is they know Christians. Jesus said when you find a disciple, you make them twice as fit for hell as you are yourself. It's possible we make it really hard for people to come to know Jesus simply by making obstacles. Free them up. What can I do, Lord? How can I get into their lives to make it easier? How can I, how can I, what can I do to free them up so they can go to church? Well, that might mean I have to work at the nursery. I'll let that one build up a while before I respond. Mephibosheth's lying on the floor, so David speaks to the servant to work the land, to free him up to sit at the king's table. David wanted Mephibosheth to be with him because he was his son. Verse 11. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that the Lord has commanded, your servant will do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he'll eat at my table like one of the king's son. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both of his feet. Let me ask you a question. When he was sitting at the king's table, in all the regalia, and all the nice... Beautifully decorated dining room with a nice tablecloth. Do you think anyone could see his lameness? Isn't that the great thing about God? When Adam and Eve fell, the first thing he did is he covered up their nakedness. When you're sitting in the table, the banqueting song that we sang about earlier, this banner over us is love. When we sit in that place where we fellowship with God and we have intimacy with God, he has already removed our sin as far as the east is far as the west. When he sees us, he just sees us sitting at the table with, with uh, Absalom and all the other sons of his. That's all he sees. He doesn't see our lameness. He doesn't see our brokenness. So quit bringing it up. Quit telling God about all the stuff you did wrong in the past. Instead of saying, I'm going to tell you about my God. He forgave me for all the stuff. I won't bring it up just out of respect because he doesn't seem to remember it. He removed my sin as far as the east and the west and remembers them no more. Quit bringing it up to God. Remember when that happened? No. Here, let me show you. Sit at the banquet table. Feast with him fellowship with him enjoy his presence the table is there to cover up your brokenness to cover up the mistakes you did and the mistakes did to others you see it can't be that easy quit making it so hard when we're in god's presence he sees us as sons and daughters he sees us of who we are in christ at some point we got to start believing this stuff you say well i can't that's what we need his presence for that's why we have to respond to his presence because when we're in there, we're changed. We're saying, Lord, is this really true? Oh, God, there's, there must be something more than this. I want him to sing this song. I love that song. There must be something more than this. Spirit of God, awake me. Come in. Consuming fire. There's, there's got to be something more than this. The heart cry of the psalmist that sang that song. When we seat us at our bangway table... We're able to be free to fellowship with him in dialogue. David couldn't have killed Mephibosheth. I don't know if you know this. Twice he had a chance to kill his grandfather Saul and he didn't. Not just because of the anointing of God on him, but because he had made a covenant with David. 
And Saul was part of that family. He wasn't about to kill Mephibosheth. When Mephibosheth sat at David's table, he was able to hear from David that he was sorry that it happened. As a father, and this is part where it starts separating as far as representing the father. But David, in a sense, some of that happened because of him. Where the brokenness in this world, I'll never say it happened because God did it. I won't do that. The wages of sin is death. We, as man, have rebelled against God. God wishes to bless us and to prosper us. He said, I've come to bring life and life in abundance. That's the testimony I want to give about the Father. But David's sitting at the table. I can hear him saying, Mephibosheth, that should have never happened. Mephibosheth, it wasn't supposed to be this way. Your dad and I had a covenant that if he died, you'd, you'd come into the castle with me and you'd fellowship with me and I'd provide for you and what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. And all this land, David would be saying to Mephibosheth, this should have never happened. Mephibosheth, I'm so sorry that your, lames got, your legs got broken as you tried to run for me. Mephibosheth, I'm so sorry you got driven to a place of no pasture. That hurts me as a covenantal father. That hurts me as a pastor. That hurts me as a shepherd over your life, David would have said. As one who's in my kingdom, as a king, he would have said. I'm sorry you got so caught up in the celebrations of my own life with being the new king, with getting that ark back. Man, we had a party beyond all parties. I'm so sorry that in all of that stuff, I didn't take care of you. That's why God wants us to sit in his presence so we can deal with that stuff. The world says if he's such a loving God, how does he allow it? When we come into his presence, he makes sense of some of this stuff. Joseph, sitting in the midst of all that took place to him, says to his brother, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Colossians says that he makes a public spectacle triumphing over our sins. When we fellowship with him, the intimate father holds us by the face and says, I want to let you know what was going on there. I never wanted you to get hurt. Why'd you love? I never wanted you to get hurt. And he calms us down. My question to you is this. What are you going to say to all the mothers who've lost sons because we didn't share? Because the Mephibosheths that have gone astray and we refuse to speak. We're, it says in scriptures that we're not only new creations, but we're ambassadors as though God were pleading through us. And we don't always tell the good news. And we see the Mephibosheths. What are we going to say to all the sons that have lost, the mothers who have lost their li- sons' lives? through death, through drugs, through suicide. I've already prepared my speeches. I'm sorry, Mrs. Kinney. I'm sorry your son, Mrs. Kinney, slashed his wrists and overdosed. I thought he was getting fine. You you told me that he was in counseling. I'm sorry I was just too busy with my life, trying to enter into this new life of Jesus. I didn't reach out to him. I'm sorry, Mrs. Halverson, that you, you woke up one day and you found your son in the garage asphyxiated. I didn't want to go back to my old life. I found Jesus and I wasn't interested in going back to that old life. I'm so sorry I had the truth and I didn't reach out to him. I'm sorry, Mrs. Murphy. Carol, your son told me he was fine. Little did I know he was going to go around the block and stick a shotgun to his head and blow his brains out. I'm sorry I didn't tell him the good news. What are you going to say when the mothers have said, my son is dead because you did not go to the Mephibosheths? When you get consumed in the passion of God, you start finding out what's in his heart. He came to seek and save the world that were broken and fractured, not to get us into this place where we can sing all these wonderful songs about Jesus, but for us to go and say, Oh, Lord, I'm here just to worship you because you've done great things. Yes, you have. What's on your heart, Lord? The lost, the broken, the fractured, the downcast, the ones who are still limping and lame in the places of no pasture. 
when we spend time in the intimacy of God and experience His presence, then we start caring about the broken women that have been put into prostitution and all the other fractionedness of this world. Oh, God, consume the church of Jesus Christ. He says, when you take away the, the pointing of finger in Isaiah 58, when you fast, did you really fast for me? When you take away the pointing of finger, when you start caring for people, then your light will break forth. And healing in its wings. See, this is what I like about this experience in God. Because here's the hope. He's chasing us. He's pursuing us. All we have to do is say, Lord, I'm so sorry for not responding to you. You got me. You got my attention, Lord. Consume me. When we get caught up in his presence and get captured by him, because we can't work it up on our own. Are you kidding me? There's too many television stations out there. There's too much things. There's too much gold and silver and shiny things. You ever notice those people, you just kind of move something and their eyes kind of... There's too much shiny stuff out there. King David said to Mephibosheth, I'm sorry that in my busyness I didn't take time to tell you I had a covenant with you. And you're my son. Turn to Isaiah 55, will you please? I want to read something. It's one of my favorite parts of Scripture. And we'll, we'll close it up with this. I like it just because it's the only passage in Scripture I know that starts off with ho. That was kind of weird. Uh, could it be yo today, I guess? Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. You must come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Remember, eating at the table doesn't even cost you anything. He's already picked up the tab. He's already paid for it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Jesus paid it all. Well, uh, phew, I don't know if I have the money. Come on in, boy. And there's seconds available for everybody. It's the only place I know where he wants you to clean your plate and he'll give you seconds. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread? You work so hard and there's no life in it, he's saying. Why And your wages for what does not satisfy. You work so hard and there's no satisfaction after a 40, 60, 80 hour week. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul will live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. He's saying, you saw the way he treated Mephibosheth? That was a guy in a sinful body who eventually became an adulterer and a murderer. He's a representative of what I'm like. You saw how he relentlessly pursued that kid and brought him into that? That's the way I am, but only better because I'm holy and I'm spotless and I'm pure and I'm blamed. Surely you will call a nation you don't know. Nations you don't know will come to you because the Lord God, the Holy One, has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thought. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he'll abundantly pardon. That's good news. When we say, Lord, I'm sorry, I've not allowed you to, uh, to, to pursue me, where I've tried to hold you at bay, when I've used my free will to hold you back, that's good news. It says, you call upon me and he'll answer. He's near. Listen to this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. You're not a dog. That's not how I think of you. I don't think of you, what do you want to do with a dead dog such as me? That's what we say to God. I'm so unworthy, so unworthy, so worthy. We'll never be worthy. That's not what it's about. I enter freely because of the blood of Jesus. Here I am, Papa. I say it with all respect. You're dumb enough to let me in. Here I am. I have been searching for the Father's love my entire life. That's why it's good news to me that the Father God wants to spend time with me. 
Here I am. What do you want to do today? Where do you want to go? I drive to work. Where do you want to go today? Don't always listen to what he says. I'll admit it. I turned right and he was going left. But what do you want to do? The whole idea that he wants to spend time with me is exciting. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways your ways. God thinks so much better of us than we do of ourselves. Now listen to me. He's serious about sin. And he's serious about dealing with sin. And you think this nation is dark? Isaiah 60 says, gross darkness. The world doesn't need more Christians. The world's loaded with Christians. What God wants and demands are disciples. People radically sold out to the love and the pursuit of Jesus Christ and willing to turn from whatever he says to say is wrong. He's looking for people that are passionate. Not just someone who says, yeah, I mean, I came to the altar at age four and therefore I'm a Christian and I can do whatever I want. He's looking for people lost in love with him. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. For as high as the heaven are above the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Jeremiah 29, 11 says he's got a future and a hope for us. As the rain comes down from the heaven, the snow from heaven, and don't return there but the water of the earth, they make it forth bring forth uh, and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So my words shall be that comes forth my mouth and it will not return to me void, but shall accomplish what I please and it will prosper in the things that I sent it. For you will go out with joy and you'll be led with peace and the mountains and the hills shall break forth and singing before you and all the trees will clap their hands. Instead of thorns, it'll be cypress tree. Instead of briar, it'll be the murder tree. And it'll be for the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign and not be cut off. He's saying, I don't want you to live in the pasture anymore. I want you to come to a place that's rich and lush. Jeremiah, he says this, I've got two things against you. You've forsaken the living God and you've dug wells that can never hold water. God is saying it's time to come home. I want you to spend time with me. I want to deal with that stuff. The worship team would come up, please. Mephibosheth ate at David's table, in my opinion, daily. And this is why we need to spend time with him. When you spend time with Jesus, you find out who we are. Someone sent for him, picked him up, threw him in the most prosperous situation, and he found out that somebody loved him and gave him all. God wants to change our situations that we're in. When you come to Jesus, not everything's perfect. I'll admit that. Sometimes you get more confused. And I'll let you know a little secret. The older you get in the Lord, as long as your heart is tender, you just need to be more aware of how you're broken away from him. And that's where grace comes in. That's where his mercy comes in. So how do we respond? I'll give you a couple of responses. One, to those who don't know Jesus, I would hate to have somebody here in this room with the sound of my voice go another day without knowing Jesus Christ. As miserable as this world is, it'd be so much worse if we didn't know Jesus. Would you agree? I mean, I'm just thinking, how do people survive? This is crazy. $4 a gallon, are we nuts? I have hope in God's provision for me, no matter what the price says. I have hope during times of family he'll provide for me. I have hope during times of unemployment he'll take care of me. My rest is on Jesus Christ. That's where it's got to be. I don't know how people do it. So I'd hate to see somebody spend another day not knowing. God is searching for you. You matter to him is the search party relentlessly pursuing him in the face of the earth. That's why he sends people to other countries to say, okay, I'll tell you about God's love. He wants a relationship with you that's real and personal. A price was paid 2,000 years ago by Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus came to pay for our sins, to free us up, to be in right relationship with the Father. That was his plan all along, not to build this. This was not his plan. He says, go, we gather. 
He says, seek the lost, and we sit there saying, why aren't they coming to our... God wants to do something and catapult us. It's so easy to miss it as we go through our day. Simply put, Jesus is calling out to you. He wants much more than your todays. He wants your tomorrows, and he wants the next week after. He want, he's in it for the long haul. All you have to do is respond to his calling by turning from your sinful ways and ask his forgiveness, and he'll deal with the rest of the stuff. On your own, you can't change your life. Uh, January 2nd should be the clearest definition we know about this. We make New Year's resolution, and it's all over by the 2nd. But today, today is the day of salvation. To those who already know Jesus, I get two things for you. Most importantly, he longs to spend time with you. I know you know that in your heads. And some of you faithfully sit in your prayer closets and you've got your scripture memorization and all the stuff you do. You've yet to have the intimacy that God wants you to have. The intimacy of knowing the Father has been downplayed so much by doing religious stuff for him. That's why you're not satisfied. That's why some of you are just as dissatisfied today as you were before you became a Christian. You've had the toys. You've had the boys. You've had everything and it hasn't brought satisfaction. I was out at the mall yesterday and I was looking for something I needed. I'm going on a pastor's conference. It's here in the city, but I wanted to buy something. Real quick. It was a pair of shoes. Not a big deal. Boy, I must have a little bit more of my feminine side that I realized. I spent three hours looking and never bought anything. That's pretty bad. While I was there, and you know what I thought about this? It just I pierced my heart, and I was I, just the Spirit of God convicted me, and I was driving down 35 and just crying. I realized I spent three hours. If the world ended last night, I didn't even have a pair of shoes to the Lord to show the Lord and said, "This is what I worked with." This, rather than spend time three hours with you, Lord, uh, this is what I bought. I didn't even have that. Then I'm wandering around the store, and a relative of mine said that before they died, they wanted a coach purse. I'd never seen a coach purse. I mean, I have seen them. I just didn't know the cost. So I went to the store and asked. And they said anywhere from three to $500, which was obscene enough. But, but I know that if you buy something that's a good value, it'll last longer. So there's some purpose of that. Then they showed me one that was worth $12,000. And I've seen extravagance. One of my clients makes $200, $300 million a year. So I've seen extravagant living. Um, then they told me they go up to $20,000. The world's going to hell. The world's starving. Iowa is in, in total chaos. The countries that Jeremy talked about is in total chaos. And we're spending $20,000 a person. You know why? Because even Christians are doing this. They still haven't figured it out. They're still digging cisterns. They're still digging wells that will never hold water. They're still looking for life and stuff. And you'll never have it. And I'm not saying that God can't bring you the stuff and that God doesn't necessarily want you to have the stuff, so don't hear that. We're going to cause an economic disaster if everyone quits buying stuff. But apart from here, you never get the satisfaction. I've smoked the Cuban cigars. I've drank the Dom Perignon. I've eaten good caviar. I've been in some wealthy homes. It doesn't bring satisfaction. It never will apart from Jesus Christ. Never. And yet we as Christians still don't get it. I listen to your stories. You sat in my office and I've counseled you over the years. Still looking for something apart from Jesus. The good news is he's pursuing us. You want to experience God? Say, God, I am so sorry. I am so sorry for pushing you away. Here I am. Sorry for trying to get life out of something that will never give me life. Respond to him. Secondly, and second in that importance, because Jesus said again, 
If you don't know me, I don't want you building buildings and casting out devils and healing the sick. Secondly, God is calling people to be Zybas. If you already know Jesus, it's time to be a Ziba. There are Mephibosheths that need to be freed up from things that they have to do. Excuses why they can't. Cut their grass, shovel their snow, do whatever it takes. Wash their clothes. Sit there and have a cup of coffee. They won't come to church. You bring church to them. You sit in their backyard. You take all the stuff you're learning from the Scripture and the intimacy with God. You pour it into their lives. They may never come here. Don't wait for that. You go to them. You work their fields. You get into their backyards. You get into the place that they can be freed up to go and be with Jesus. It's time for some of you to get out of your comfort zone and say, Father, you really can do whatever you want. That sounds like a lot of guilt. No, it's just a little conviction. You haven't even heard the... I just tag team with Steve and we would just pray that God would bring it in. What am I trying to say? God wants to use us. God wants us to join him in what he's already doing. We pray for the lost. We're just joining God. It's his heart. Where do you think that gets from? I don't have that kind of love for people. I really don't. Someone wants to go to hell. There's part of me that says, okay, you chose that. That's not God's heart. So God works in there as I spend time with him that he wishes that none should perish. None. So I grieve as I see people dying. I grieve as I see the brokenness world. That I see someone shot. That kid that, that shot another kid and then jumped off the high bridge. I grieve for those people. Lost souls. Broken, fractured. And say, Lord, too many going on. Use me. It's time for us to do a little spiritual damage here. There were 20 lifeboats upon the Titanic. It's about half what was required to fully evacuate the ship. And most of them were only partially full. Some were actually half empty. As the Titanic was sinking, many of the passengers were able to put on life jackets, but they were not able to find available lifeboats. They jumped or fell in the ocean, and they were left floating in the frigid waters, crying out in the night for help. Again, there were room in the lifeboats for hundreds of them. That is why their fate is perhaps the most shocking human tragedy of the heart rendering night when 1,500 people died. Those in the water continued to cry out for somebody to rescue them, and the lifeboats just kept rowing away. They thought the rescue was too risky, so out of 20 lifeboats, only one turned back in time to save six passengers. Three days later, when the funeral ships arrived from Nova Scotia, they were greeted by a ghostly sight. 328 life jackets, men, women, and children, floating in the water, frozen to death. And why did they die? Not because the Titanic sank. They died because the people who were already saved would not go back to rescue the people who were not. Stand on your feet, please. Romans 12.1 says that I beseech you by the mercy of the God you present your bodies a living and holy, acceptable sacrifice to God, which is your reasonable act of service. The NIV says it's your reasonable act of worship. Father, Father, I'm asking, and if you want to come forward, we'll pray. Father, I'm asking that you do something in our hearts, something only you can do. We don't want to manufacture in the flesh, because if we manufacture in the flesh, it'll be quickly taken away. Father, I'm asking that you would do something in our hearts. For those who don't know Jesus, I'm praying that you would turn, that they would, would respond and say, yes, I want that. Don't leave this place until you do that. To those who don't have that intimate relationship that are Christians, I, I pray that you wouldn't leave without grabbing someone. So would you pray that God would put that kind of passion for your name into my heart. And for those who know Jesus that have got it figured out and you're worshiping God, 
I pray that you wouldn't leave here without grabbing someone and say, man, I, I want to be a Ziba. I don't want to be a person that works the field and does whatever it can to get the Mephibosheths freed up to be at the table of God. Father, we just commit our lives to you. We, it seems so oxymoronical to say Jesus would give you permission as Lord. You are Lord. You bought and paid a, a precious price for our lives. Use us in any way you feel is necessary. We just surrender our lives to you, Lord. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. All to him I surrender. Lord, we want to experience you. We want to experience what you're doing. We want to join in to those who say, man, I've just been waiting. I've just been waiting for an opportunity to do something for God. I pray that that we would see what you're doing, Father. Open our eyes. Open our hearts. Hebrews 13.20 says this, Now may the God of peace, who brought back from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, even our Lord Jesus Christ, may he make you perfect in every good thing to do his will, working in that in us which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and ever, forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.